0: Such a simple story. Even children can tell it. Let's see if you can pass the quiz on it, though. All right. So now 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 some look at the, I do this every couple of years just, you know, just to see how we're doing with this. And some people look at this and they go, this this these are trick questions. Not if you read your Bible, they're not. All right. So. So we're going to see how you did. You, know, you don't have to take it in real time. You can just kind of look. Maybe you know the answer to yourself or something like that. I'm not sure, but we'll walk through it. These are the, the top 10 questions we need to ask when surveying Christmas, right? To see if we know the biblical Christmas story. Now, the first question, what little town were Mary and Joseph from? Nice, you guys are scholars. I tried to suck you in on that little town thing, but little town of Nazareth doesn't really sound great, but that's what it is. So that's number one. Number two, who were the only ones who knew where the Messiah was to be born? The prophets, yes, the Jewish leaders. We're going to learn about those guys in a minute because they were hacks. All right. So number three, who came to see Jesus on the night of his birth? Shepherds. Shepherds. That's all, all right? Shepherds were the ones that came and saw Jesus. In which gospel do we see the little drummer boy? None! Everybody knows the devil's in the beat. He wouldn't come to the birth. All right, so. Sorry, Nathan. All right, so, number five, the shepherds were filled with what when they were approached by the announcing angel? Fear! Fear! Joy, you would think, but if I saw a big buff angel, I would be afraid to. All right, so how many wise men came to see Jesus? We don't know, right? Matthew chapter 2 says that all of Jerusalem was filled with fear when the wise men came, which means probably a big posse. All right, so very good. In what direction did the wise men travel to to see Jesus? Sucked you in on that one. They saw a star in the east and traveled west. Nice. Very good. All right. Where did the wise men find Jesus? In a house. In a house. All right. Which then, because of the way we do our nativities, I, I, I try to remind people of this. If you want to do your nativity right at your home, you shut it up, but you take your wise men and you put them in Ellensburg. All right. And, and, and. Pretty much by springtime, they'll be ready for your night nativity. So uh, that's all right, though. All right, so next, uh, who sent the wise men to search diligently for Jesus so that he too might come and worship him? Herod, and Herod was a liar. All right, and number 10, who said his name shall be called Jesus. The angel was the one that named Jesus. Very good, everybody. Excellent job. You know your Christmas story. I love knowing the Christmas story. So with that, since we're going to look at the Christmas story a little bit this morning, let's go ahead and pray together and get right underway. Jesus, again, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the story. That we uh, learn of your birth and again the implications of that story for our lives. And so we praise you today, we thank you today, and we give this day to you in your good and awesome name. Amen. All right, so the Christmas story, it, it, it's to me one of the most fascinating stories because it so grips our attention, and it's strange that it does, because really, when you look at the story in the Bible, when it comes to bulk, it's actually a very thin story. It's only in two of the four Gospels, it spans only a total of four chapters, 180 verses. When you're looking at an overall Bible, that's a pretty small snippet. Even of the life of Jesus, very small, yet the the impact of the story, the profound nature of the story is so huge that it demands our attention. And when we look at the Christmas story so often, at least for me when I read it, there's these layers to what can be seen. I mean, really, you, you can look, and in one sense you can say, wow, look at a character study of all the individuals. And in another sense you say, look at all the responses of people as the Christ comes into the world. And from another layer you see just profound theology, God revealing himself, revealing his heart, revealing his character in the birth of Christ. And yet, when I really boil all of that down, what I realize in the nativity, in the scene where God comes before men is that that picture exposes and reveals the condition of the human soul. In fact, if anything, I find that anytime Jesus comes into an environment, whether he's an infant, whether he's a teen, whether he's an adult, whether it's in our lives today, there is this reality that he gets inside the human psyche, inside the human condition, and he begins to expose the realities of who we are. And and, and from that exposure, there are then a series of responses uh, that come from that. And when I look at the birth of Christ and I look at the nativity, that's exactly what I see. I see different individuals that are being exposed to Jesus, different individuals that are beginning to then have their own internals revealed to them. And then from that, they're left with the need to respond. And, and, and see, that's really the mission of Jesus anyway. As God sends Christ into the world, what Christ really does in his core purpose is he exposes. He opens us up. He causes us to look at ourselves, in ourselves, and from that exposes our idols, exposes our predispositions, exposes our biases, exposes our wants and needs. Ultimately, he exposes our sin our sin. I mean, that's what even this little child does in the story. I mean, as everybody interacts with them, there is this unbelievable recognition that humanity needs something. Humanity needs some type of rescue. There is some type of dilemma. There is some sort of rebellion. There is some kind of human agenda in play. And boy, this, this, this little Christ, he He begins to deal with that and tinker and tamper with our internals. And so, in a lot of ways, what happens is people hear and they begin to look at Him. And then they see Him through the lens of their own, you know, kind of person. Their own approach, their own angle, their own skewed sense of recognition as far as what God is up to. And and I I notice that with all the different players. In the story, if you really look at all of the different people in that nativity, in those four chapters, you see them all doing and acting and responding based on these predispositions, based on these dispositions of their character and their heart and their need, and they all respond different. when some hear about Christ, when some hear that the King of the Jews has come into the world, their first inclination is to retain. To retain the throne that they themselves sit upon. And they themselves have made themselves to be their own God. They rule, they reign, their life. And so that's their response. They retain their throne. You see that when they respond with fear and control. And the need to cement their own agenda. Then there's others. And they do it a little bit different. They simply reserve the throne. They reserve the throne for a God by their definition. They want a God that fits their preconceived ideas, their box that they have designed that they fit God in. And so they they just do that. They just simply say, I'm going to reserve the throne for another. And we're waiting for him. But then there's this third group and they relinquish the throne to the one true God. They say, no, that's the one. He's the guy. This is the one we're longing for. This is the one we need. This is the savior of the world. This is the one that will change everything. And therefore, I give him the throne that he is due for he's always been on the throne. I just didn't see it that way. See, that is the story of the nativity. Retain, reserve, or relinquish fear, indifference, or faith. It's really all it comes down to. And, and what I find so uh, fascinating when I think about this is that since that moment of his birth and those three responses fear, indifference, or faith uh, for 2,000 years, that still seems to be the three fundamental responses when somebody comes in contact with Christ. When somebody actually is introduced to Jesus, one of those three things usually drives to the surface in how they respond to him, how they treat him, how they interact with Jesus. I mean, think about this first with Herod. Herod would be the embodiment of one that says, no, I want to retain the throne for myself. And so he hears and his response is fear. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter uh, 2, You you see this uh, pretty clearly, right? And this is where we even learned about the wise men briefly. It says, Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And it says, and about that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, and they were asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. And it says, and Herod was deeply disturbed by their questions. He's so disturbed that he's going to tell them, go and find him so I can come and worship him. But his whole agenda is something very different. Because he knows that there is one who is suddenly going to supplant his perceived throne. There's one that's going to challenge his authority and his independence and his sense of self-determination. There's one who is a real king with real power, not like Herod's. And so there's this fear that overwhelms his life. And he says, you know what, I, I, I need to stop that. And the way he seeks to stop this in fear is to destroy God. He says, I'm going to destroy God, and that's how I'll retain my throne. And we know from the story that eventually he sends out troops to kill all the children that are two years of age and below. And yet, when I think about that, I go, wait, 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 that's no different than today. When some come in contact with Christ, the first inclination is, whoa, he expects something of me. He demands something of me. He has these absolute standards and he is the only way. And that seems very domineering. And then they get sort of belligerent about it. Oh, so Christianity is the only ones that have figured it out. Oh, it's so exclusive that your God's the only true God and everybody else is wrong. And so from that, there's this fear and you'll hear it. You'll hear the fear world, they'll say, oh, man, Christianity is a scary religion. I remember reading Richard Dawkins just a couple of years ago, and that was this big thing. Oh, Christianity is scary. We should be fearful and afraid of the message of Jesus. He went so far to say the message of Jesus is a fearful thing, right? And and so I go, "That, that sounds a lot like Herod. It's the same thing, and so they seek to destroy. Some seek to destroy by denial. Just deny God, right? And that's how we destroy him. Others try to destroy him by defaming God, redefine him, make him domesticated, make him docile, take out sin, take out expectation, take out help, take out demand, take out all of that. And we just just dismantle his person. Either way, it's designed to destroy who God says he is as God is revealed. And that's the response of Herod in the Gospels. He hears of Jesus and he says, no, no, no don't want it i'm fearful i want to retain the throne for myself and so he seeks to destroy that is one disposition we see within the narrative but that's what jesus exposes in Herod. he brings all of that self-determination to the surface and the willingness to kill the innocent to keep his own power and that is some fear i don't think fear is the major reaction of people a lot of times i think that's reaction of some But that's a minority. I think the majority has a more common response. It's the response we see in the higher authority of the environment at the time. It's a response we see from the religious leadership in the area. In fact, it's the indifference of religion. In fact, also in Matthew chapter 2, right, as all these wise men roll in and they want to know what's going on and they want to find the king of the Jews, and Herod says, hey, uh, I'm worried about this. I'm concerned. They need to figure out where is he. And so it says in verse 4, it says, he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. And he said, where did the prophet say that the Messiah was to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem, for this is what the prophet wrote. Now, what I find so interesting about this is here are these people longing for the Messiah. They can't wait for him to come and free them from the Romans and have all of this, uh, you know, newfound life when the Messiah finally arrives. And then these guys show up from the east and they say, we're looking for the Messiah. And they go, well, we know where he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And the next question would be like, are you going to go with us? And like, no. Oh, we're just gonna hang out here. We got Han- Hanukkah coming up. We got menorahs to make and dreidels to spin and you know, whatever you know. We just can't go. I mean, how strange is that? That everything that you say you've been longing for is finally there, and you aren't willing to saddle up and just ride a couple of miles to at least go see. I mean, it's, it's so odd, this idea of indifference. It's like it just rolls off their lips, but it doesn't shape their life. And I thought about this this week, and I thought, you know, that's really no different than how some interact with Jesus today. He's sort of like the poster child for Christmas and Easter, but 363 other days. He's important. He's good. I believe in him. But I just don't go out of my way for him very much. I'm sort of indifferent. It's a little bit like, I think he's number one, most important big guy in the sky. I'm going to heaven to be with him someday. I claim him, but if if you really started to analyze it, it's almost a relationship of tolerance more than this sense of want and desire. Because there is a God that I believe in, I have to sort of make peace with him but really, if you gave me all sorts of options, he would not be the option. I would gravitate for as far as how I would use my time, my talents, and my treasures. It would be, I want to do a lot of other things, but I believe in him. Again, no different than the religious leadership of the day here in the nativity. They just sort of tolerate it. And so they're indifferent. Believe in him. They even say they want to see him. But they're not willing to mount up, go a few miles, and see if it's for real. That's what I mean by the nativity. We, we look at the story, go, oh, there's, there's this manger and this baby and these angels and the star, and it's also nice and sweet. But this baby comes and he opens us up. He confronts fears, he confronts indifference. He causes us to anchor into our dispositions. And so sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's indifference. But the great thing is that there is faith. And in the story of Nativity, we are graced by God with many examples of those who exhibit real faith. Unbelievable faith. Challenging faith. I mean, think about the cast of characters. You first think about Mary... 13 years old, blue-collar town, probably pretty rough around the edges. And God comes and speaks through an angel and says, You are going to carry the Son of God. You are chosen. You are favored. You have been picked by God for this purpose. And her first response is fear. And I get it. I remember one time I asked my 13-year-old daughter, I'm like, what if God came to you and said, You're going to have his baby? And her answer was, You've got the wrong chick, dude. Right? Very clear for it. No, I'm 13. I don't do that. Others have babies, not me, right? And 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 that's going to be the case here. And she's questions and fears and concerns, and you got to imagine what are my parents going to think, and what is my fiance going to think, and what is my village going to think, and my religious system is going to ostracize me if they don't flat out stone me for this. But then God calms her anxiety, and she puts herself to the side. And takes this bold step of faith to glorify God. Right? It's faith in the unknown, charted, unseen, foreseen, unplotted. I mean, just she has to have faith. I mean, it's it's just black before, other than God said, Don't worry, I've got it handled. That's profound faith. Huge. thing about Joseph? He hears. And certainly after hearing, he's got all sorts of concerns, like, really? Come on, you know, virgin, I don't know, this has never happened before, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, he's concerned. And so he decides, I'm going to put her away secretly because, again, I, I, I care about her. I, I want the best for her. I don't want to embarrass her, but I cannot stay with her either. And then God comes again with a message to an angel and says, Joseph, you are perfectly suited for this. This dear woman is going to need a man, a man to love her, to care for her, to protect her, and to raise my son. You're the guy to do this. And so, against maybe all sensibility, against all sense of uh, being well-received by community, he puts himself to the side again, just like Mary puts herself to the side. They put themselves to the side and they say, God, we are going to step in faith because we want to glorify you. See, often what you see in the movement of faith is denial of self and trust in God when you don't know how it's going to end up. All you know is that God is God. He said, go, you go. Uh, That's faith for his glory and they both do that you see the same thing with the shepherds maybe in a lesser way they hear the announcement and they fear again notice how a lot of times the response is anxiety it's fear it's uh, this uh dread of I i don't know what to do next but then again god settles and these shepherds Upon hearing the wondrous things happened that night, they say, well, then, all right, we need to go. We need to see this glorious thing that God has done. And their step of faith was simple, but in their culture profound, they leave their flocks. They leave them, right? They're out there at night making sure that nothing kills their livelihood. And now they hear this baby's been born and in faith they go, we're going to leave all of the animals. We're going to let God keep our flocks, our livelihood, our wage. And we're going to go and we're going to see this baby. We're going to leave our lambs because this lamb matters more than all the other ones in this field. And so in faith they leave and they go and they see the lamb that's going to atone for their sins. Worth far more than everything they left in the field that night and they trust god in faith again They set themselves to the side and they glorify god in faith And then you even have the wise men Who uh, again are these guys from a distant land. They're not jewish Uh, They may not have really a lot of the jewish bible even to go by basically in faith They say, you know what, some ancient prophets told us a story that one day in Israel a child would be born, he would be Messiah, and even though he's not of our race, we know this, that he will come and he will reconcile all races to himself. And in faith, we're going to take the time, the money, and the risk, and we're going to see this child, and we're going to worship him. They set themselves to the side. In faith, they move, and they give God glory. Again, in every instance, the story is the same. They move in faith, 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 faith. Like I said, the nativity brings out fear, indifference, or faith. Jesus, as he interacts with lives today, fear, indifference, or faith. The formula is always the same. And so right now, I want to invite the worship team up As I get ready to close up here. And as they come up, I want to just bring sort of a Christmas reminder, all right, to all of us. It's that thing that we learn from the story. What is it we can learn from the story? And as I kind of let it rattle around in my mind and ponder it, you know, I I look in each instance in the stories of faith. And I'm reminded that, you know what, faith inherently has challenge and faith inherently is going to first have this sense of fear, and then it's overcome as God deals with the anxiety. Faith has risk. Faith requires steps, and that sometimes God says, you know what, I'm not promising this is going to work out the way you want it, but it's going to work out the way I want it to work out. And that's sufficient. And so faith always demands something of us that is never comfortable. There's never going to be a time where we take action in faith, steps of faith, and we go, hey, that felt really easy. Otherwise, we would just be taking factual steps. No, steps of faith are things where we just don't know. And yet it's those very acts of faith, when we see them in the lives of people that inspire us. I mean, they really inspire us. I mean, think about it. When you think about significance, significance rarely ever flows from watching somebody respond in fear. We rarely see somebody act in fear and we go, wow, that was a significant action. We go, no, no, that was a, that, they were just afraid. And it doesn't penetrate us. And significance is never, ever born out of indifference. We never see an indifferent person. We go, wow, that's really significant. I think I want to be like that. We don't do that. When you think about that word significance, and I love it because I think it's rooted in faith. But when you think about that, not fear, not indifference, but true, bold, eye-popping, jaw-dropping, sin-slaying, life-shaping, mind-transforming, world-changing, spirit-honoring, Jesus-exalting, God-glorifying significance. What that is rooted in always, always is